This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And Crikey's political editor, Bernard Keane, was at the first court appearance last week of the whistleblowers who revealed that ASIS, the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, bugged the Timor-Leste cabinet room during oil and gas field negotiations right back in 2004. Uh, Almost 15 years later, the DPP and government's bringing a case against Witness K, so-called, a former ASIS employee and barrister and lawyer Bernard Collery, who once served as ACT Attorney General. And we have Bernard Keane on the line and Bernard... I've just given a little bit of an intro. There's just so much to this story, um, but it hasn't kind of got that much publicity yet. Um, can you recap to sort of bring us up to, to where we are now? What's been happening? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, this, this is the biggest spy scandal or biggest intelligence scandal and national security scandal of recent decades. I mean, this is absolutely massive. And that's why the government is engaged in an all-out effort to cover it up as much as possible. So in the, in, in the, in the Howard years, uh, in the wake of the establishment of Timor-Leste as, a, as an independent state, the status of the Timor Sea and access to resources under it uh, had to be thrashed out. Australia took a very hardline stance in those negotiations, um, uh, trying to get as much as possible in terms of access to resources um, in its negotiations with the new state of Timor-Leste. You would have thought, given you know the, the, the fragility of Timor-Leste as a, as a viable state, uh, it would have been in Australia's interest to actually, uh, you know, take a take a, you know, a more engaging and more generous approach to negotiations. But we we played hardball as much as possible, and as part of that process, uh, Alexander Daniel, the then Foreign Affairs Minister, ordered ASIS, which is in the, the Foreign Intelligence Service that is controlled by. Uh, the, the, the Foreign Affairs Ministry to bug Timor-Leste's cabinet so that the government would have an understanding of, uh, of, what, was, um, uh, of what was transpiring within the, the, the Timorese cabinet as a, um, you know, as a guide to how it should approach negotiations. And uh, that operation took resources away from uh, the, the counter-terrorism effort in Indonesia at that point, uh, and it preceded... Uh, the conclusion of negotiations uh, between Australia and Timor-Leste over access to the Timor Sea and the resources uh, under it, which turned out to be uh, quite useful for uh, Australian resources company Woodside, which uh, was set to develop uh, the um, the gas resources there. Now, all of this was a complete secret uh, until... Um, Timor-Leste decided that it wanted to revisit uh, the, the treaty at the start of this decade. And as a consequence of to- toing and froing and what eventually became an international court case, uh, uh, Witness K, who was an ACES officer, uh, who was uh, in uh, senior ACES officer at the time, uh, revealed that that bugging took place. Uh, and it's important to note he didn't do it as a whistleblower. So when we refer to Witness K as a whistleblower, that's actually incorrect. Uh, he was not seeking to blow the whistle. He revealed that information as part of what is effectively uh, a, an employment dispute between ASIS and himself. He claims that because he resisted engaging, uh, participating in that operation, that, uh, that he was in effect uh, sacked from ASIS. Uh, and as a consequence, his revelation of that operation 
uh, is entirely legal. Uh, he hasn't broken the law by doing it. He acted on the instruction of the then Inspector General of Intelligence uh, and Security. Um, and uh, <coughs> the issue would have remained exactly you know, in that position after 2013 when we found out about the uh, about the bugging except that earlier this year this government decided to prosecute both witness k and his lawyer bernard Caleri, long-standing national security lawyer here in canberra as well as a former member of the act government uh in relation to the revelation uh, of this operation why did they wait five years uh well uh that's a very good question but it seems to do with the fact that earlier this year um, uh, as a result of prolonged period of negotiations between Timor-Leste and Australia, there was once again a new Timor-Sea uh, treaty agreed uh, and the issue of access to those resources underneath the Timor-Sea uh, was finally resolved. Clearly the government's decided that now that we've actually got this issue out of the way, we can go after the people who actually embarrassed us by revealing an illegal bugging operation by ASIS. And this case has reportedly been brought by the Director of Public Prosecutions but approved by Attorney-General Christian Porter. That's what he's saying. Is there any sense that, that he has been more willing to prosecute this case than his predecessor, George Brandis? Well, George Brandis, back in 2013, in, in the wake of, uh, of the revelations, explicitly threatened... Bernard Caleri in relation to this case saying that uh, he may yet be charged. So it's clearly been in, on the agenda of this government to go after Witness K and Bernard Caleri for a very long time and, and as, as, as I suggested earlier they may have been constrained uh, purely in relation to the fact that they wanted to negotiate uh, you know, a final treaty with, uh, uh, with Timor-Leste. The government's always made clear that they, they were keen to, uh, uh, to go after them. There's an interesting little uh, aspect, though, to the prosecution, which I think really does demonstrate the political nature of, of this prosecution. The actual revelation of the bugging of the Timor-Leste cabinet occurred in an article in The Australian uh, in, I think it was May 2013. Uh, so The Australian was the, was the outlet that broke the story, is the Australian mentioned in the uh, in the documents relating to the prosecution of Bernard Clary and Witness K? No, it's not. Uh, Bernard Clary has only been uh, prosecuted for talking to the ABC, which he did considerably later in 2013. So it's a very interesting question as to why the government has decided to omit a news corporation publication from the charges around this uh, in relation to who might be called to give evidence about to whom Bernard Caleri spoke and why it's included the ABC, uh, even though it's very, very difficult to see exactly what uh, um, you know, uh, sensitive information might have been disclosed to the ABC that wasn't disclosed uh, to the Australian. So I'll, I'll leave listeners to make up their own mind as to why the government's decided in this context to go after the ABC, but to me, you leave uh, News Corporation alone. There's so many questions with this case, Bernard, and I think um, another one is that Bernard Caleri is also um, writing a book. I mean, does that play into it as well? Well, yeah, Bernard Caleri is writing a book in relation to uh, not not specifically uh, the Witness K, <coughs> excuse me, the Witness K situation, but the broader issue of uh, of 
uh, relations with Timor-Leste. Bernard Caleri, until until he was raided by uh, ASIO back in in, in 2013, uh, in, in in the wake of these revelations, was actually a lawyer working for the Timor-Leste government. He had to basically recuse himself after that because he'd been charged, or sorry, he hadn't been charged, but uh, but he'd been uh, he'd been criticised by. Uh, the Australian government, so he wasn't, uh, he didn't feel as though he was able to continue to represent Timor Leste. But Bernard Caleri has been involved in this case for a very long time, and the book is really about the truth behind uh, all the negotiations relating to this particular treaty. And uh, there is no doubt that there will be material in the book that will yet again embarrass uh, Australia. Uh, you know, it's always been a very bad look that, that, that Australia decided to be you know play such a, a so aggressively play hardball with with timor leste you know a state that that we really should have you know been you know, devoted ourselves to looking after purely from a grounds of self-interest i mean you know it was you know it, it's demonstrably in australia's self-interest to have a you know a healthy successful timor leste on our doorstep um but australia has always uh, been you know, highly aggressive uh, in its negotiation for Timor-Leste. And uh, Bernard Cleary's book, which was, is, uh, is due out, uh, I think, later this year or early next year, uh, really does cover the ground on this. And there's no doubt the government is concerned about the material that's in that book. Um, how justified that is, though, is really not clear at this point. Uh, Bernard Cleary is a very, very experienced uh, lawyer in these areas. His national security cleared, or was, um, and uh, which means you know, national security agencies have assessed him, they've approved uh, their own officers using him for legal matters. So if you know if an ACO employee has a has a dispute with ACO about their employment, for example, they, you know they they can go to certain lawyers, and Bernard Cleary is one of those lawyers because he's you know he's well versed in these areas. So this is a man who has always taken his responsibilities regarding national security very very seriously. You know, there is no suggestion, I don't think, that uh, apart from coming from the government, that Bernard Caleri is some sort of, you know, cavalier figure who's, you know, happy to leak anything and everything. Uh, certainly my feelings with him, I've found to be, him to be uh, extraordinarily concerned about the national interest and, and, uh, and national security. So, you know, let, let's, let's not think that this is going to be some sort of, you know, uh, you know, wild release of, of, of top secret information. But nonetheless, I think it will, it does have the enormous potential to yet again embarrass the government about its entire approach to East Timor and, and that's sort of Timor Leste. And that's, that's, that's not just been under the Howard government, that's been under the Howard, Rudd, Gillard, Abbott, uh, Turnbull and now Morrison government. So there's been, there's been major party bipartisanship on this issue uh, in regard to how we treat Timor-Leste uh, for the best part of 20 years. You were uh, at the court earlier, or last week I should say, Bernard. I understand the proceedings lasted just around 15 minutes. Can you explain what that was like being there and, and what happened? Okay, so the, the threshold issue, that was this, this was the first hearing, the threshold issue was whether the public is going to be allowed to, to know what's going on in this trial. The government wants to basically suppress the proceedings. They want the entire trial to be carried out in camera. They claim for national security reasons. Uh, in fact, what they want to do is, is in, you know, pursue this prosecution without any scrutiny. Um, you know, the key facts are already out in this case. Um, uh, you know, we know that this bugging occurred. Um, so, you know, there, there could be no sort of issue about 
that, that being disclosed. Witness K's identity is something that everyone understands must continue to be protected, not just protected under the law. It's illegal to reveal the identity of AIDS officers, but for his own safety and protection, that needs to be protected. So, you know, there is no, you know, there's no demonstrable case to say that national security demands of this trial be conducted in camera. Nonetheless, that's what the Director of Public Prosecutions wants. What they've been doing so far is trying to negotiate with the defence team in order to come to some sort of agreement about the extent to which the whole trial will be suppressed. Now, clearly the defence is resisting that. That negotiation process was what was, you know, was, was being discussed in uh, the first hearing last week. That process of trying to negotiate some sort of outcome that is mutually acceptable to defence and prosecution over how much of the trial will be in public, how much will be suppressed, continues. It's going to continue for some time. The next hearing is going to be uh, at the end of October, at which point we'll find out whether there's been some sort of resolution of this particular issue. But, um, you know, it, you know it, it's, it's not merely the case that this prosecution uh, is outrageous, uh, that, uh, that uh, you know, the only people who've been prosecuted in relation to what was a demonstrably illegal act by ASIS have been the people involved in revealing it. Uh, but the government is continuing to try and cover this up. I mean, this is a cover-up. It's occurring in plain sight. Um, and it's something that uh, anyone who's concerned about the abuse of power, the rule of law uh, in Australia, really should be deeply concerned about because... Um, you know, as we crowded into that rather small courtroom uh, in uh, in Canberra uh, last week, um, you know, there was certainly a number of supporters there for Bernard Cleary, a number of lawyers, including from media companies, who are who may be very interested in any effort to suppress this. But um, you know, it's hard to avoid the sense that you know, in a in a small Canberra courtroom. The prosecution of people, uh, uh, you know, purely for the fact that they've embarrassed a government um, uh, under the auspices of national security legislation is occurring in plain sight. And, um, you know, it's not getting anything like the attention that it deserves. And uh, you, you said, Bernard, that it, they're not whistleblowers, uh, but certainly Andrew Wilkie, who's spoken out um, loudly in support of um, better whistleblower um, protections and so forth, is interested in this case. So that's also, I mean, he has been speaking about it. Um, would any of the sort of whistleblower protections or anything that he's been speaking about even have any bearing on a case like this or it really is quite separate? Well, it's, yeah, it is quite separate. I mean, what's happened in recent years is that there has been an improvement in whistleblower protections for public servants, but they're still extraordinarily limited, and they're even more limited for intelligence officers. I mean, basically, intelligence officers um, can't get access to whistleblower protections that are available to ordinary public servants, uh, protections that have been in place for since, I think, 2011, 2012. Um, got, they can only go to the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, which is this you know, statutory officer charged with uh, you know, keeping some sort of independent oversight over our intelligence agencies. The funny thing is, though, that that is exactly what Witness K did in relation to his employment dispute with ASIS. He went to uh, the, the then Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, Ian Carnell, uh, saying, look, this is a situation I'm in. I believe I've been unfairly dismissed because of my opposition to this basically political action. And by the way, you know, little footnote, Alexander Downer went on to work for Woodside after he left politics. 
uh, the very company that actually benefited from uh, the agreement that was nutted out between the Howard government and Timor-Leste, uh, partly as a result of the bugging. Uh, so again, I'll let people make up their own mind uh, about, uh, about that situation. But um, Witness K went to the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security and uh, the then uh, inspector said to him, uh, you can reveal this in an appropriate court of law. And that is exactly what he did. He then uh, revealed the information in the context of Timor-Leste's suit against Australia in the International Court of Justice. So Witness K actually did exactly what he was required to do under the law in relation to his particular situation. Uh, but as a result, you know, he's ended up being prosecuted in a Canberra court. So, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, again, the... Um, the legislative protections that are supposed to be in place, you know, are ones that uh, can be abused uh, pretty readily. And as we've mentioned, the likes of Andrew Wilkie, along with Nick McKim from the Greens and Rebecca Sharkey, have voiced concerns about this prosecution. But on the Labor side, they've been pretty quiet about this prosecution from at least my reading on this, Bernard. Shadow Attorney General Mark Dreyfus has said it was important to let the judicial process take its course here. Can we kind of assume that they condone this this prosecution or, or what can we read into to Labor's view? Well, Labor is up to its eyeballs in this. Um, as I said, the Gillard government was part of this process of covering up uh, the, the crime that was committed by ASIS. Uh, and in fact, uh, before the revelation of the bugging, um, uh, uh, Bob Carr, the then Foreign Minister, and Mark Dreyfus, the then Attorney General, uh, put out a press release criticising uh, allegations that were then sort of swirling around, suggesting that Australia had bugged uh, Timor-Leste. I mean, the, 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 the allegation that this bugging had taken place had actually been around for a while um, and, uh, and Carr and Dreyfus back then specifically criticised uh, those, uh, those claims. Uh, we now know, of course, that um, uh, the bugging actually occurred. Um, so the role of, um, uh, of Mark Dreyfus in this as Attorney-General back then, uh, well, you know, basically he, every bit is complicit uh, as George Brandis and Christian Porter uh, in this entire process. So it's no wonder that Labor has been absolutely silent uh, on this. I mean, you know, in, in partisan terms, you would think that uh, Labor would see benefit in pursuing the fact that a Liberal government uh, broke the law by uh, getting its foreign intelligence service to bug the cabinet of a friendly state Timor-Leste and then covered it up, uh, you'd think Labor would have an interest in, in unveiling that, in pursuing that, in scrutinising that, in asking questions about it. Instead, there's been stony silence from Labor, uh, and that reflects the fact that its, you know, it's, it's current shadow Attorney-General Mark Dreyfus was involved in this issue when he was last in government. He will be, uh, one assumes, Attorney-General if Labor wins the next election, He'll have the opportunity to intervene uh, in this case and bring an end to this prosecution, but on uh, on past form, I think that's very unlikely. I think uh, you know this is a bipartisan pursuit of two people who have embarrassed uh, the Howard government. Uh, you know the Labor side is every bit as you know, much to blame, every bit as complicit in this uh, as the current Liberal Party. It's very really intriguing, and just finally, Bernard, I. I mean, how are you with re reporting this? I mean, it's important that we, we know what's happening. Um, you say there's a hearing in October. We'll find out how much will be revealed in open court. Are you having to be particularly careful about talking and, and also reporting on this issue? 
Uh, it's, it is it is complex to to cover this off. Partly because the legislation is is rather complex, uh, but partly also because um, there are obviously legal issues around you know what can be discussed. I mean, the most obvious one is you know the identity of identity of witness K or anything that 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 might point to the identity of witness K. But there's other issues as well. Um, uh, uh, I, I, you know, to be to be you know to engage in full disclosure, I'm, I'm obviously deeply angry about this prosecution. I want to I want to cover this issue to make sure that there is you know as much coverage as possible for what's being done to Bernard Clary and uh, and Witness K. But at the same time, uh, you've got to be very careful about prejudicing the uh, their chances of a successful defence. A defence, you know, the, the defence case in this uh, in this prosecution is going to be complex. There are very significant issues at stake. You know, there's a very good chance that some of this is going to end up going to the High Court. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, as someone who is both a supporter and providing coverage of this, you know, it's, you know, it's always important to sort of make sure that whatever I'm writing is, is uh, you know, fulfilling a public interest criterion uh, and, uh, and, you know, enables readers to make up their own minds about what's going on. Because clearly, you know, there are people... Uh, within the national security establishment who take a very different view of what Witness K has done uh, and for that matter what Bernard Cleary has done, although my understanding is that there are a lot of people within intelligence agencies who are deeply concerned about the prosecution, particularly in regard to Bernard Cleary, who is a very trusted uh, legal advisor to many people within the intelligence community. There's a lot of concern about the way that uh, he's being treated. so ultimately, we've got to try and just provide as much transparency as possible, shine as much light as possible on this. People can make up their own minds about the national security issues around this, but um, you know, my concern is that as many people as possible know about what's being done uh, and uh, and the way that it's being done and the cover up that's uh, that's going on, and uh, they can make their own judgments about uh, about what the appropriateness of what's been what's being done. And you can um, read more about it on Crikey. Thanks so much, Bernard, for um, spending so much time with us this morning. No worries. And housing in Australia is expensive. Rent is high, house prices are high, and those on fixed incomes are struggling to live anywhere at all. But it wasn't always like this, and something has changed. What has changed? And this is a central question Peter Mayers wanted to find out. He's an independent writer and researcher and his new book, No Place Like Home, Repairing Australia's Housing Crisis is out now. And uh, we spoke to you just really recently, Peter, and it's really great to have you in studio. Welcome. Well, it's fantastic to be back and it's nice to be doing my first interview about my book, which came out today on Triple R. Oh, fantastic. What a coup. (laughs) (laughs) And um, we all have opinions, I think, about uh, what's wrong with the housing system and depending on what point of view you, you know, we're coming from, but you wanted to go and unpack it bit by bit. And what did you find? Well, did- yes, everyone does have opinions because everyone lives in a house and whether they're a renter or a homeowner and paying off a mortgage or, or whatever, or even a landlord, their own perspective will inform their view. And I, I wanted to understand it because I had this, uh, I write right at the start of the book about a conversation I have with a man in the street who's asking for money. I'm walking my dog, I used to see him every day and he was having a particularly bad day and he was yelling at all the passers-by, you know, saying, you're ugly, you think your money will get you to heaven, it won't, you know. Uh, And I stopped to chat to him and and, uh, he was angry at me too and he said, you love your dog more than you love me. And he was making the point that, you know, people like me care more about our pets than we do about someone who's homeless and on the street. And 
at, at root, he's he's right, right? We, we we are not doing the right thing by people who can't afford to get a roof over their heads. And so what on that same walk, which is around the inner city, I would see all these brand new apartment buildings going up. It cranes on the skyline everywhere. And you're told, well, a problem of housing in Australia is a lack of supply. And I'm thinking, where's the lack of supply? I mean, there's housing going up everywhere. So is it a lack of supply or are there other issues at play? And so the, the book is an attempt as a kind of, you know, everyday citizen journalist to try and look through the issues, talking to different people, reading a lot of um, sort of fairly boring uh, housing reports, uh, uh, industry reports, things like that, and trying to make sense of it for myself. Yeah, and it's an incredibly detailed book, but also highly readable as well, because it has that kind of journalistic (laughs) flair, I guess, where you speak to you know, ordinary people and friends of yours and, and, and talk through their living arrangements and, and the hardship, I guess, some of them have faced in terms of not being able to avoid, afford a home and the precarious situation many people are in when they're renters. But one of the, the things that comes out of your book, and it wouldn't be a surprise to many people, is that this great Australian dream of owning your own home is broken. But you kind of came out with a bit of, diff- bit of a different conclusion at the end of the book than you went in with, that it might take more than just kind of, I guess, tweaking some policy settings around the edges to get this right and that perhaps home ownership isn't the be-all and end-all of what it once was. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we, you know, we had this historic experience in Australia in the post-war period where we had a situation where almost everyone at some point in their life got to own their own home. So while home ownership rates peaked at around 72%, over the course of someone's life, there was something like a 90% chance that they would own, own a home, uh, which is pretty extraordinary. Uh, and you'd, in a way, I suppose you'd hope it could always continue like that. But in the meantime, we've created all sorts of, well, there's, there's all sorts of things that have happened. We've got the introduction of negative gearing and a capital gains tax discount that's encouraged um, investors to pile into uh, to real estate. We've had a historic fall in interest rates, which has made it much easier for people with established wealth to buy more housing uh, than, than perhaps they would have previously. We've had growing population and, and land is in limited supply. So, of course, the best located housing is already taken up and it's taken up with fairly large houses on fairly large blocks in middle ring suburbs. And it's very hard to redevelop that into, say, medium density uh, housing that would house more people in places that are well linked to public transport, close to jobs, that sort of thing. So that we, we, we all know our cities are spreading over farmland out, out on the fringes. Uh, people are being pushed out into areas where they're a long way from where they might work, where the public transport links are weak and so on. So, and plus we're seeing the massive high-rise development, particularly in Melbourne, but also in other cities, some of which is not a very good quality, which creates problems in the city of, of overshadowing, wind effects, you know, that sort of thing. So we don't seem to be getting it right. And while we've had this you know, we've had, what is it, 28 years of uninterrupted economic growth in Australia. Uh, we've seen house prices go up and up and up. Uh, but we've also seen homelessness increase and we've seen rental stress increase. Rental stress is when someone's spending more than 30% of their income or their disposable income on their rent. And I bet there's plenty of people listening who are. And there's uh, probably plenty of people listening who are spending more and wish they could only spend 30%. I'm sure that's right. I mean, 30% is the threshold at which people talk or the you know experts 
describe rental stress. What does rental stress mean? Well, it means you have to, you know, not spend as much as you might like on turning turning on the heater or the air conditioner or, you know, maybe your kids' school books or school uniforms or, or whatever it might be. And, I mean, there's a lot of interest not being served in the current system, um, if we can call it a system. Um, but whose interests are being served? Because I think, you know, in uh, what I found quite revealing about your book is this question of is it is it working as it should or is it broken? And and we don't necessarily have a clear answer to this question. No, no I guess to come back to Dylan's question too about what's... Well, the conclusion is not... Um, I mean, the issue here is not uh, increasing the rate of home ownership in Australia. The issue is increasing the rate of secure housing in Australia so that people are in housing that is... Uh, safe, secure, affordable, ideally energy efficient as well. So now, um, you know, lots of people would probably like to own their own homes. Fair enough. There are, we can say there might be benefits to owning your own home, uh, but it's not the only way to organise things. I mean, I lived in Germany for a couple of years as a student. Um, my friends there who are the same age as me and I'm in my mid-50s still rent. Half of all, more than half of all Germans' households are renters. Germany's not you know, a struggling nation as a result. Uh, there are different rules for tenants. There are different rules for landlords. There are different expectations from landlords above all. Here in Australia, we, we use this term mum and dad investors as if it's somehow my generosity as a landlord to let you live in my house for a while. Um, and, I, I, you know, I can kick you out any time. I don't want you there because my focus is on a capital gain from that house, not on a, not all, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm exaggerating here. Of course, there are plenty of really good landlords who provide their tenants with good quality accommodation at a reasonable rent and so on. But the the way the incentives are set up through our tax system, the incentives are set up for me to be focusing on the capital gain in my housing, because we think housing just keeps going up and up and up, and we know it doesn't, rather than on a secure, steady return of rental income from a secure, steady, reliable tenant. Yeah, and I think this... Oh, sorry, Dylan... Oh, sorry. Well, one of the fundamental problems that, that you identify is this this idea of housing as being an investment, much more than something that's a necessity, a right that we all have, that we all should have you know, access to safe and secure housing. These are kind of fundamentally different things in the way. And, and you write in the book about how there are you know new apartments going up in the city that are left vacant for years because whoever invested that might be able invested in that might be able to get a higher return years down the track if it hasn't been lived in. So there's kind of an incentive in some instances for not even renting out a property that you might have bought. Yeah, I think that, I mean, there's... there's People might hold a place vacant for all sorts of reasons. One reason might be because they don't want to bother with tenants and they figure they're going to get a capital gain anyway. I think that's unlikely on an apartment in the city these days. But also a lot of the, a lot of the apartments we see in the inner city in, in Melbourne and, and probably other cities too have been built for a, a, an investor market, including a foreign investor market. So uh, in some cases, people are looking maybe from China or other other countries, they're looking for a safe place to invest some money. So whether that makes a big return or not, it might be more about positioning that money outside China. Um, it might be about creating uh, housing for when you visit. If, if you're someone who 
you know, flies in and flies out a bit, might be housing for your son or daughter who's studying in Australia. There's lots of reasons. And, and, you know, a lot of people want to blame foreign investors for our housing problems, but it's important to remember that foreign investors can only buy new housing. So if they buy a house, they're adding to the supply of housing overall. If they buy a house and rent it out, they're adding to the supply of rental housing. So it's not a simple thing of like foreign investors are to blame or indeed investors of any kind are to blame. And it's not as simple as saying that scrap negative gearing and the capital gains tax discount, that'll solve all our problems. Or let's cut immigration. (laughs) Or let's cut immigration. That's Well, I mean, we can cut immigration. And uh, and if we did, housing prices would probably decline because, um, you know, if you have less demand and that that reduces um, prices generally. But we, we have to think about what all the other consequences of that might be. So let's say we, you know cut student numbers to our international uh, to international student numbers well you know there, there may be an argument for doing that but what are we going to do about the income that that generates our third largest export industry in australia second largest in victoria creates you know lots of jobs uh, it helps fund our universities so it's never as simple as as you know there's no one-shot solution here um that so in my view, the most important thing we need to do is to increase the supply of affordable and social rental housing. The housing at the bottom end for people on low incomes or living on uh, some kind of government payment, that's where the real crisis is and that's that's where we need to increase supply. And, yeah, you speak uh, often in the book about housing justice and is this part of um, having a look at housing in with a, in a different framework, I suppose, that we all deserve shelter, um, somewhere to live, um, but for to supply people with housing when they don't have the ability to um, rent nearby where they work or rent in private rental at all because they're on a fixed income, those people need to be looked after. And I wonder, what you know, what's your sense of attitudes towards that, the idea that we can put in well-located suburbs uh, houses for people on on lower incomes, people that are vulnerable? Well, we, we used to do it. I we mean, used to you, do it all the time. Again, if you look around Melbourne, you go to Carlton or yep. Fitzroy or Northcote or um, South Yarra, um, South Melbourne, you'll see Housing Commission flats uh, and, you know, they've been there for a long time now. Um, so the, we do have in Victoria a... Um, public housing renewal program, which the state government is implementing. They're spending less on that than they're spending on the, um, whatever the stadium's called now in Docklands, that used to be Etihad, now it's Marvel, I think, but that's being, they're spending more, more renovating that than they are renovating our social housing. And they're renovating the social housing by selling off or, um, a lot of the, that very valuable land to private developers. Now that you know, there's possibly an argument for that in that those private developers will also build new housing. Increasing supply is part of the overall picture supply, but you can only sell that land once and then it's gone. It's gone forever. It's no longer in public hands. It would have been far better for government to create some system whereby they leased that land on a, say, 30-year lease with a 30-year renewal option for uh, developers to build affordable, well, to build uh, let's say build to rent as it's known so build housing specifically designed to rent as well as upgrading the social housing and adding to the stock of social housing I and mean, the other thing that the victorian government says we're increasing the number in, in the renewal program we're increasing the number of units of social housing by 10 percent which sounds good a bit um, not really ambitious enough but you know sounds all right but when you look at it 
they're replacing three bedroom places with two and one bedroom places so you're going to end up with fewer bedrooms overall now it makes sense to build smaller places because there's a lot more single people these days or people without kids but let's not kid ourselves we need a much much greater increase in supply and yes and then you get to your going back to your question we get a lot of um, opposition i don't want to live next to um, social housing and social problems and 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 also i can't i can't afford to live in that suburb so you know how come x they? can that sort of attitude which i come across yeah. I, I mean I, I read those sorts of comments and it's quite different to when we had massive public housing programs in victoria but also other states yeah i mean i think it's important to talk about the way in which we allowed public housing to decline so you know in the in the immediate post-war era the government was both supporting people to buy their own homes and supporting the, the growth of public housing. I mean, the South Australian Housing Trust, for example, is a famous example. But the level of public housing as a share of all dwellings has fallen from something like 7% a decade or so ago to approaching 4% now. So we're allowing it, you know, our governments and, and we as voters, I guess, are allowing it to, to continue to decline. You look at a place like Finland, which has no, almost no homelessness, no long-term homelessness, 13% of all, public, of all housing is public housing. Um, many analysts would say you need at least 10% to provide that buffer at the bottom. Uh, and of course, it's very expensive to build that. Um, so you then have to say well where do we get the revenue from and you you i mean governments will say that they don't have enough money to, to build you know a massive upsurge in the amount of public housing mm. stock but you say that's crap given we've had um you know decades of uninterrupted economic growth and, and point out i think as well which is important to acknowledge that there are mechanisms mechanisms in place that in a way subsidize the kind of investor market and the sit situation and system as it is yeah. in in the way of negative gearing and capital gains tax discounts as well, which has kind of lost tax revenue. That's right. I mean, so those 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 incentives are there um, for people to, you know, buy investment housing. Now, uh, the, the, the theory behind negative gearing is that it creates cheaper rentals because people are able to offset uh, their losses um, from rental income against other other income they might earn. I would buy that if I would consider that a more reasonable argument if negative gearing was limited to new housing. So in order to claim that benefit, you've got to actually be increasing the housing supply. Then I could see an argument for it. The capital gains tax discount, you only have to hold a property for a year. And then, you know, say say you hold it for a year and you make $200,000 in that year, you only pay a capital gains tax on half that amount. Now, why would you tax someone's hard labour at one rate and they're free gotten gains essentially at another that's crazy to me so uh, in germany as i mentioned before uh, you know, i mentioned germany being a country with a lot of renters before they have a capital gains tax discount but you have to hold the property for 10 years so therefore you you are encouraged to find a secure long-term tenant uh in order to recoup that uh, or access that that um, benefit uh, i mean and, but the other really big thing is we essentially we make we encourage people to put all their money into their primary residence, homeowners, that is. So that's the best place to put your money. If I put my money there, it's never taxed. If I mean, apart from stamp duty that I pay up front, if, you know, if I die and my son inherits my property, he doesn't pay any 
tax on it when when I die. Uh, so so there's a the system is there to encourage overinvestment in housing, encourage us to pile our money in there, and as a result, we're highly indebted. Australia has one of the highest levels of household debt in the world, and that as, as now when we see how pr- house prices coming off, we start getting worried about that sort of stuff. Um, so you know we haven't just created an unequal system that kind of builds inequality into bricks and mortar. We've also created a highly risky system, in my view, where we have high levels of household indebtedness. Most debt is related to housing investments. Um, so, you know, it doesn't seem like the most sensible way to go, in my view. Yeah, there's so many issues, aren't there? Um, Peter Mayers is with us. His book is No Place Like Home, Repairing Australia's Housing Crisis. And let's look at some of those, um, a few more of those repairs. So we've spoken about the need for more social and public housing. Um, but there are some other interesting things that are happening in the market. You mentioned build to rent as well, mm-hmm. which I'd love to hear more about. And also we're seeing projects like the, the Nightingale housing model where um, it's a commercial um, endeavour, but prices are capped for resale of, of apartments and it's quite a different model. It's, um, you know, kind of architect driven rather than developer driven. So we're seeing little glimmers of change in our current housing market. Can you talk to about some of those? Yeah, so the Nightingale um, model is based on a, a, a German idea called Baugruppen, which simply means building groups. And it's where a group of people come together and say, well, we all want a, a place to live, so let's invest together and come up with our own design, working together with a, a professional architect who will help them design. And, and we might decide that instead of all, us each having our own laundry, we'll have a common laundry area. We might decide that we'll only have a certain amount of car parking because it's, you know, we're in Brunswick and there's lots of public transport. We might decide we want a rooftop garden or we might decide we want one spare um, apartment that everyone can rent rent out to friends or lend to friends. You know, there's various various kind of features that you can build in. But in develop in working at, as your own developer, um, you're saving a lot of money because there's none of the advertising costs that developers have when they market a building. You're getting exactly you know what you want with compromising with your your, your fellow buyers or, or whatever. Um, so you save on the marketing costs. You save on the developer's margin because you're going to you're going to be paying the builder directly rather than the developer whacking um, a percentage on top. So they can come in significantly cheaper um, than uh, standard uh, developments for similar quality of housing and, in fact, often more energy efficient because they're designed that way and so on. I mean, a developer has to build to the lowest common denominator. What can I sell, you know, to this demographic or whatever? Whereas if you're coming together as a group, you can... Uh, kind of create what you want. So I think that's a really exciting model. I don't think, though, it's the solution to our housing problems because it's fairly specific. It requires a lot of investment on the investment a lot of, of cooperation. Time. Yeah, and time and energy and thought on the part of the person who wants to be involved in the housing. And as you say, you can you can cap the resale value so that it's not otherwise it'd be a big incentive you can't to go profit in. And, for it. Yeah. So what about build to rent? Because this is a model that is a, a little bit more flexible. Yeah, so build to rent is a much more kind of commercial scale model, and this would be developers like Mervac. I think is looking at that. Uh, they would come in instead of building as we see now a set of apartments to sell off the plan they'd build a set of apartments to rent Um, and and it sort of changes the incentive so if you're building to sell off the plan well you want to make sure that the penthouse has you know five bedrooms and five bathrooms because that's going to get you the biggest amount of money and have the best views Um, and uh, you're not 
maybe going to be so concerned about the quality of the building after you've sold everything else because it's not going to be your concern anymore after you know after seven years or whatever um, if there's a problem whereas if you're owning it and renting it out you're going to have more incentive to build a, a range of apartments um, uh, you know of different sizes so people can move within the building say I'm I'm, I'm, I'm renting there and um, I get a partner and I want a bigger place I might swap to a two-bedroom place from a one-bedroom um, there, there's an incentive on the developer to build really well so that because they want it to be an enduring asset um, so the idea is recognizing that not everyone wants to buy a house some people want the flexibility of renting this is quite a common model in the US it's called multifamily housing there um, and, it, and, and there are various regulatory barriers to it happening here but it's certainly a, a potential yeah and I mean there's, there's some great solutions you outline in the book but on the flip side of that is I guess political will and, and people who have a good grasp of these issues and, and the, um, the, the will to push them through parliament if indeed they, they have that influence in government but we have seen rental reforms passed in the Victorian parliament yeah. recently also you talk about John Alexander Liberal MP mm-hmm. is having some quite good ideas about how we can address the housing crisis and if Labor does win government at the next federal election we can assume there'll be changes to negative gearing and the capital gains tax discount as well. Do you see much hope that there is change that uh, you know could happen in the near future? Well not in not in the near future I mean I do think there could be changes on negative gearing capital gains tax discount. I do think there's potential to encourage uh, a build to rent sector. Um, I would hope that that um, a future Labor government would recommit funds to social housing. Um, the bigger issue, uh, the, my longer-term proposal, which I have a, a, an opinion piece about it in The Age today, people might want to look at, um, and I'm getting a lot of negative comments from it, but my bigger suggestion is let's stop privileging the, the family home, if you want to call it that, the primary residence in tax terms. Let's People like me, so I'm in my mid-50s, as, as I say, I b- bought with my... Um, partner, we bought our first house in 1990. We've done extremely well out of property, and most of the benefits have been because property land prices have gone up. So we've, you know, we've become quite property wealthy. Now I feel it's quite reasonable for people like me to be asked to pay some of that windfall gain in in the form of a a, um, a broad-based property tax. Um, in order to help fund affordable housing. So I put it as it's time for homeowners to pay the rent on affordable housing. Now, you know, people say, but what about me? I just bought my home. I'm struggling to pay the mortgage. You you have to, what you do is you'd phase out stamp duty, which is very difficult for first home buyers, and you'd replace it with an ongoing yearly kind of charge, much like your your um, your council rates or whatever, but you'd have a high threshold. So the people who paid it or the people who paid the most uh, would be the people who have the most housing wealth. And, and, you know, then people say, well, what about the pensioner who's living in the $2 million home, they're asset rich, but they're income poor, they can't afford to pay this new charge. Well, that can be a lien against their estate. Let's say they, let's say they live in a $2 million home. Let's say the tax cuts in after $500,000. So they're paying tax on $1.5 million. Let's say it's a point zero, uh, point, um, you know, 2% tax. So let's say anyway, it works out at $3,000 a year and the pensioner hasn't got $3,000 a year. Okay, so it becomes a lien against their estate. That means, let's say they live there for, um, um, let's say 30 years longer. So it's $90,000, the tax. So 
when they sell their $2 million at home, $90,000 goes to the government instead of to their children. I don't think that's an unreasonable ask. And they don't have to suffer any pressure in the meantime. Well, good on you for proposing that, Peter, because uh, as you said, it's probably not making you very popular, but these kinds of discussions need to happen. And I suppose by default, we have we have had and probably will continue to have discussions between generations about avocado and so forth, <laughs> because these things do erupt at different times because people have quite formed views now about who's to blame for the fact that they're child or themselves aren't able to get into housing these solutions and repairs are going to take a really long time and they need us to talk about it and and you know we need to recognize this is not it is a generational issue in part but a lot of it is a class issue or a wealth issue those of us who are lucky enough to benefit from on fairly modest salaries buying well-located homes um, 30 years ago 40 years ago whatever we have huge amount of wealth and People who weren't in that position or haven't been in that position Or who don't. weren't born, yeah. born yet. Who weren't born yet. Or whose <laughs> parents aren't wealthy already. Ex- exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, a, a, it's a big issue. Um, good on you for writing about it so clearly. And hopefully we've done some justice to it this morning here on Triple R. You can uh, get Peter's book, um, Peter Mayer's It's No Place Like Home Repairing Australia's Housing Crisis. Uh, it's out through text. You can read Peter's work on Inside Story as well. And um, and sounds like an opinion piece in The Age Today, which I haven't read yet and I look forward to it and thanks and looking forward to having you back on Triple R again in the future. I hope so. Thanks very much. Thanks. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.